Good afternoon, brethren. What a pleasure it is to be here, all of us together on this day, the Sabbath day. I really appreciated the special music. It, it was encouraging, uplifting, and I think uh, additionally it fit well into my sermon. It doesn't always happen, but they inspired me in particular. And I'd like to echo Mr. Ames' sentiments about the council meeting. I, as I've said before, and to our congregations, I always come back from those meetings encouraged and inspired with our leadership, with the work, with the way God is directing the work, and the direction of the work, the power of the work. And it is always encouraging, that spirit of harmony and peace and unity, and what a privilege it is. Well, it is a large group here from all different countries. I've met several people already, uh, renewing relationships from different countries. And kind of like, as they say, kind of like a mini feast and... It's exciting, something that we can be encouraged about. We look forward to the conference, the ministerial conference this coming week with many others traveling in. So we look forward to that, and we'll certainly enjoy that and be inspired by it as well. You know, every last one of us at times in our life, I'm sure, and we have times when we get a little bit down. I know I have. I know you have, if, probably if you're normal. when we, Maybe we've had a bad day. Let's put it that way. And everything has gone wrong. And, you know, several appliances break or whatever. Small things, not big deals, but they weigh on us. And uh, things happen in our life from time to time. And all of us have those kind of days from time to time. And typically, we shake it off. And we think, okay, I'll get by this. And uh, this too shall pass. We shake it off. We go on our way. And the next day, uh, we hope, is not part of a trend in our life, you know, <laughs> it's just a day, not part of a trend. There are other times, though, in our life when we've all experienced this, other times in our life when it's not just a bad day, when things transpire, but it seems are, in a way, for a while, it seems like our ship has run aground. You know, things happen, they do happen. It could relate to a loss of a job. If you've ever been in that experience and you have a family, you know how... Well, how wrenching that can be at times. Occasionally, it could be the death of a family member or even a child. How tragic that can be when that occurs. And maybe disease in a family member. Maybe uh, an additional problem at work that we don't know how to deal with. We're just really not sure what to do about the situation at the moment. Or it could be, as we know, money problems. They're, They're common in society and common among us as well. Or it may be just plain loneliness in our life at the moment. You know, we shouldn't be lonely, but we, we are from time to time as things occur. And again, sometimes we wonder, where do I go from here? Have you ever been there? Where, where do I go? What's my next move? Where do I go from here? Hopefully we realize that the difficulties that arise in our life are common Among us, among God's people, within God's church, it's common to all mankind as well. We know that. We're not unique. We're not different. And these things transpire. As we know, no temptation, we might say no trouble, no difficulty in our life has overtaken us except such as is common to man, common to women, all of us. 1 Corinthians 10, 13. That's the way of life sometimes, isn't it? Time and chance happens to us all. Well, we all share difficulties. And God wants us to realize, as we begin to think about it, that we're no different from anyone else. God is there for us if we truly seek our God and we approach Him like the true God of the universe, our Father. And you know, the true spiritual giants of both the Old Testament, of both also the New as well, certainly found out to be the case. They found out to be the case in in virtually every example of the spiritual giants. You know, the one that was known as a man after God's own heart. We know that, that gentleman. We hope to meet him someday. He had some very difficult times in his life. And he, too, needed to learn, as we all do, to trust our God, even in thick and thin, as it were. Today, I'd like to look back at one of the worst episodes, one of the worst days, not more than a day, one of the worst periods of his life, of David's life. 
and like to see how he came through it. I think it, it can inspire us. We will have difficulties ahead of us in this world. We know that. We don't know what's around the corner or over, let's say, the next hill. Lessons that can be learned by all of us in facing difficult times, uncertain times in the future, which we all face from time to time. The title of the sermon is Encourage Yourself in the Eternal. 1 Samuel 30 is a, as if you'll turn there, it's a classic example, and you'll see the example of a crisis in David's life when everything seemed to be falling apart over a period of days and weeks and months. Let's set the stage for the crisis at that time, the current crisis. Samuel had already anointed David king over Israel, that leadership, that position, and was chosen to be set apart to lead God's people at that time. But in short order, things changed. They didn't turn out that way. Things don't always turn out the way we plan, do they? They didn't turn out that way. In short order, he was running for his life at that time from his, well, from his father-in-law, from his crazy father-in-law at the time. And yet he was a man after God's heart, as we know. And you think, well, is that kind of a contradiction? But even Saul acknowledged David's righteousness. And that's kind of interesting to think about. And Saul lifted up his voice and wept at one point in time. And then he, and he said to David, you are more righteous than I. You think about that. The one he was attempting to destroy, whom he considered his enemy. And now I know indeed that you shall surely be king and that the kingdom of Israel shall be established in your hand. And you can find that in 1 Samuel 24. You know the story, the stress that occurred thereafter. In a sense, it's some like, somewhat, I would say, like you and me, who have been called, we've been chosen, we have a special calling, a special training, a special commission to be literal kings, and I might say also priests, but to be literal kings in the millennium, in the kingdom of God, and yet... Sometimes we find ourselves on the run. We find ourselves not exactly working out that way, the way we assumed it would have worked out thereafter with circumstances that may be beyond our control, not to our liking, whatever the case may be. And at that time in David's life, as we see the story unfold, David was on the run from Saul. Saul was highly jealous of David at that time, the future, as it turns out, the future king of Israel. Saul's intent was to hunt him down and to kill him. And you think really how, how earth-shaking that would be in your life if you had someone, even of your own family, hunting you down with that intent. And so David, as it was, was he fled. He was a vagabond for a time. He fled to the nation of the Philistines among some of the enemies of Israel at the time, the enemies of God's people at that time. And in time, David and his men, they, they eked out. They barely eked out a living as hired warriors of the Philistines. And for their service, they were given a city to live in. They were at least given a place to live by the name of Ziklag. And if we turn to 1 Samuel 27... For Samuel chapter 27, we'll see a little bit of that story. We'll see how it unfolds. Verse 27 and verse 5. And David said to Achish, If I have now found favor in your, in your eyes, let them give me a place in some town in the country. And he wasn't asking for a big city. He just said some town in the country. And David was even here asking humbly that I may dwell there, for why should your servant dwell in the royal city with you? So Achish gave him Ziklag that day, and therefore Ziklag has belonged to the kings of Judah to this day, at least the time of the writing. And now the time that David dwelt in the country of the Philistines was one full year and four months. In other words, 16 months 
He was a vagabond of sorts, at least in a foreign land. Uh, He was an exile at that time, and yet he was anointed to be king of Israel. And he found himself in a situation he didn't fully understand at that time. So Ziklag became the home of David and his men and their wives and their children for a period of 16 months, 16 long months. The city was home for their families. When finally it was time for the Philistines to attack Israel, to go to war again against Israel at that time, David and his army, they were sent home from potentially the battlefield to their town back to Ziklag. It seemed kind of strange, but apparently the Philistine princes, they weren't really sure how to trust, how far to trust David. This Israelite, how could you trust this Israelite among us? How could they trust David in battle against Israel, against his homeland? First Samuel 29 and verse 3. And then the princes of the Philistines said, What are these Hebrews doing here? What in the world are these guys doing here? And Achish said to his princes of the Philistines, Is this not David the servant of Saul, king of Israel, who has been with me these days, these many days, or these years? And to this day I have found no fault in him since he defected to me. Now let's take a look, of course, how the life of David suddenly begins to hit the wall, we might say. But the princes of the Philistines were angry with him. So the princes of the Philistines said to him, Make this fellow return that he may go back to the place which you have appointed for him, and do not let him go with us to battle, lest in the battle he become our adversary. Probably kind of reasonable thinking, you know, uh, this former enemy of the Philistines. For with what could he reconcile himself to his master, if not with the, the heads of these men? In other words, we get into battle, and David and his men turn against us, And suddenly he's reconciled to the king of Israel. And they were basically saying, this is not going to happen. We can't let this happen. Send him home. And, of course, a little surprise development then and there for David, as we know. So what what happened from there? For Samuel chapter 30, as the story unfolds, in verse 1. And now it happened when David and his men came to Ziklag... Of course, they returned from that area. They had been near the battle on the third day. It was a three-day journey, a three-day's march and a ride back to Ziklag at that time. I'm sure that was weary, a weary time. They weren't in their SUVs, you know, and they marched and they moved. The third day that the Amalekites had invaded the south and Ziklag attacked Ziklag and burned it with fire. And think about that. What a horrendous scene before them. They ride over the ridge, a three-day journey at that time, and they see the entire city burned with fire. Incredible. And, of course, we know what was in the city. Verse 2. And they had taken captive the women and those who were with them from small to great. They did not kill anyone but carried them away and went their way. So David and his men came to the city, and there it was, burned with fire. And their wives and their sons and their daughters had been taken captive. You know, if having your city burned to the ground is not bad enough, it's not enough of a shock, they discover their entire families are gone. They've been carried away. Their wives, their little ones their sons, their daughters. You might say everything is lost at that moment. David and his men were already tired. They were hungry. A three days march back home. They thought they were coming home to their wives, to their children, to their families, to rest, to food, to the joy of being home. And instead, 
a shocking scene unfolds before them, a scene of emptiness and total loss. You can begin to feel what it must have felt like to these gallant men, as it were, returning home. And these courageous warriors were so overwhelmed with disappointment and with grief and with sorrow that the Bible says in verse 4, And then David and the people who were with him, all his valiant men, they lifted up their voices and they wept. And it's okay to cry, you know, when it's appropriate. And they wept until they had no more power to weep. Now, this wasn't just a little boo-hoo. <laughs> you think, you know, they were drained. They absolutely were drained at that time. And this was the worst of days, as you can imagine, to think about the impact on them. A really bad scene as it began to unfold, as they saw what transpired. They wept until they couldn't cry anymore. They were just spent, totally emotionally, physically spent. Perhaps you've had a day like that sometime in your past. You know, you can think back, uh, something transpired. Maybe the sun in your life refused to shine on that day, as you remember. They, maybe when your heart ached, you began to wonder, you began to think, and you wish possibly you were someone or somewhere else at that moment in your life. Verse 5, And David's two wives, Ahinoam, the Desrelitus, and Abigail, the widow of Nabal, the Carmelite, had been taken captive. You know, his wives, he was emotionally spent as well, as you can imagine. Tremendous tragedy, and they were gone. And you think, wow, nothing could be worse. Nothing could get worse. It couldn't be any worse. Well, you know, things turned worse at that moment. They did get worse for David at that moment. Verse 6. Now, David was greatly distressed, for the people spoke, notice, of stoning him. Now, we've got one more level, a higher level of disappointment, of rejection, because the soul of all the people were grieved. Now, every man for his sons and his daughters and, and their wives. And what a life, when you analyze it, when you think about it. To summarize for the anointed king of Israel, he's on, had been on the run for his life from Saul. He goes into exile with his men. He returns home after a grueling three-day journey, and he finds the entire city destroyed with all their loved ones, their wives, their sons, their daughters. And to top it all off, David's own men, his loyal men, decide to kill him. They have that intent. They're so, they're so disappointed with the outcome. They decided to stone him, or they were on the verge of stoning him. You know, these men, they looked around, these warriors, what was left of their home still smoldering, I assume, smoke still rising at the moment, and the smoke rising from the ashes, from the ashes really of their life as it was. And, of course, the hurt and anger rises at the same time as they analyze where they were at. And he turned their anger on their leader, on the future King David at that moment. And this was one of the most difficult situations imaginable. Away from his own country, chased by mentally ill, at least times king, father-in-law, living like a, bag, a vagabond, Faces the destruction, of course, of his own home, the loss of his family. And now his own men speak of mutiny, and they threaten to kill him at that moment. Hopefully none of you, none of us have ever experienced anything anywhere close to that in our lives. And I, I imagine we haven't. Not remotely as discouraging as that was. But every one of us, at times, we have our difficulties. We have in the past, we may have in the future. It's a difficult world. It is Satan's world. Remember, David was to be future king of Israel, 
but ultimately the future resurrected king over all Israel and the kingdom of God as well under Jesus Christ. He had a tremendous future ahead of him, but this is what he found at the moment. You might say David was going through spiritual boot camp, in which we all do. One way or another, we go through spiritual boot camp to be firstborn in the family of God. And if and when we feel sometimes a little bit of down, a little bit of desperation, you know, it's a reminder again that, as we heard in, uh, I think, in a song, in the Psalms, that we're not alone, that God can lift us up. God has an intent and a purpose for our training. And this obviously was rock bottom for David, rock bottom in his life at that time. The end of the rope, you know, sometimes we almost reach the end of our rope. And in, in his case, as the future king, supposed to be at least king over Israel, it all come to ruin. As he looked at it, he looked back on it at all, at least at the moment it came to ruin. And many people would have thrown in the towel. You understand that. It, you know, that's, that's human nature. Most people would have thrown in the towel. Not David. We'll see the lesson of how he came out of that moment of life. Notice what David did. And there's a sequence here I'd like to look at a little more closely. How he came out of that moment. Verse 6, back to verse 6. Last part of the verse. It says, but David strengthened himself in the Lord his God, in the eternal his God. Notice that. He strengthened himself in the Lord his God, according to the new King James. And, of course, in the King James, the old King James, it says, but David encouraged himself in the Lord his God. He turned to his God at that moment of his life. Strong's reference 2388, uh, the word translated encouraged or strengthened, says it means to strengthen, to repair, to fortify, to encourage, to fasten. And when you hang on, you fasten, and to be of good courage. What an incredible example. We'll see how that unfolded. An incredible example. David didn't panic. I sometimes use the term, he didn't freak out and panic, as some of us might. He didn't panic. He didn't give up on God at that moment of one of the dark hours of his life. He, he didn't grow bitter either. You think about it, it'd be easy to grow bitter, wouldn't it? And I think, why me? Why is this happening? He went to the source of all hope. He went to the great God himself. Well, we know that even in the worst of times, sometimes in the darkest hour, there is hope. There is a source of encouragement, as we will see in David's life. I'm sure some of you, most of you, could tell your own story at some, some time of your life. In your darkest hour, maybe in the past, the, the most difficult time of your life, you turn to God as your source of strength, or you probably wouldn't be here. You turn to your God for encouragement to be lifted up, and God saw you through. And, and again, in most cases, if that wasn't the case, you probably wouldn't be here. You know, you, you have that history. You have that experience. So we, we may gain, again, some of the training that will be ahead of us. We may face some trials ahead of us. We know the years ahead of us, we're not done. This journey's not over. We may occasionally face the question, where do I go from here? Which way do I turn? How do I handle this? And, you know, one's response must always be, encourage yourself in the eternal. Whether it's financial, some of us has been there. You can tell your stories. Maybe it's health-related Maybe it's a job situation or a lack of or even a family difficulty, sometimes very, very, very difficult. And we know there's nothing too difficult for God himself to handle if we, if we handle it properly, if we approach the great God. So God is allowing circumstances in our life to train us in seeking him for courage, 
for strength, for the answers of life. Sometimes we don't have all the answers. Of course, God does have them. So the question is, how do you encourage yourself in the eternal? When things are not going well, they haven't turned out right, or you face a major decision, you're not sure which way to turn, left or right, how do you encourage yourself in the eternal? Do you throw your hands up in despair, or do you go boldly to your God? Well, let's look at the example of King David. Let's spend some time looking at several steps. David used consistently in his life. He learned it's the same path of success that can potentially see us through every pothole in the road of life. You know, if we have the direction, if we have the courage to seek our God. I've got four priorities I'd like to list that David employed as he pulled himself with God's help out of the set of circumstances. Four priorities that kind of refocus us, that line us up with the great God. Number one, number one priority is to surrender to the will of God. In other words, look for God's will and know that God is there for you. Pretty critical that we look to the great God for his will. This doesn't mean that every question that comes our way, every difficulty that comes our way, every need that comes our way that we face, we, we shrimp, simply shrug it off and all we say is God's will be done and we slide onto our spiritual couch. It doesn't mean that we handle it that way. You know, we, we've got to take care of business. We can't be fatalistic. We've got to do our part. We've got to be activated. We've got to expand some effort when we seek our God. Did God allow all the downers in David's life at that time, culminating in the loss, of course, of his family, the destruction of his home, simply because God wanted to see David suffer? He wanted to see misery in David's life. Of course not. That's not the point. God allowed David to experience these negative circumstances, and he allowed it to experience this kind of circumstances to train him as future king of Israel, of the physical nation of Israel, but eventually in the kingdom of God under Jesus Christ. There was tremendous training that occurred in David's life. David was being trained in the character of a king. And that's something we're all being trained. That's our same calling. God wanted David to learn to confidently trust his leadership on many levels to trust the leadership of the great God. Sometimes we have to learn to trust God's human leadership as well. And when God allows negative circumstances, things to happen in our life that we weren't planning on, that we weren't anticipating, it's simply not because God wants negatives in our life. That's not the case. That's not the reason for it. God allows negatives to occur Sometimes time and chance to train us as future kings in the kingdom of God. We're all being trained to be kings, no less so than King David himself. To trust in the great God, in his deliverance, in his wisdom, in his judgment, the judgment of the great God. We know scripture tells us, and do not be conformed to this world but be transformed by the renewing of your mind that you may prove what is the good and acceptable and perfect will of God. Romans 12:2, of course. Christ also said, And this is the will of the Father who sent me, that of all he has given me, that includes you and me, we have God's Spirit, of all he has given me, I should lose nothing or no one, but should raise it up, should raise them up in the last day. God calls us to be successes, to be winners, to be future kings in the kingdom of God. So God's will for David, and for all of us as future kings under Jesus Christ, is that we be fully trained. We finish our training. We continue our training and God is the perfect trainer. He knows what we need, one to give and one to withhold. 
And he's training us to follow in his leadership, the leadership of the great God. Well, David was full of this type of confidence. Surrendering to the will of God. He knew what he was doing. Psalm 18, in verse 1, David exemplified it often in his life. Psalm 18, in verse 1, I will love you, O Lord, my strength. The Lord is my rock and my fortress and my deliverer. My God, my strength, in whom I will trust. My shield and the horn of my salvation. My stronghold. You see these words of strength and power. And I will call upon the Lord who is worthy to be praised. And so shall I be saved from my enemies. We could say from our problems, our fears, you know, the difficulties in life. And so when negative, negative things happen in life, as they do and as they will, or even when we have serious decisions to make, do I do this, do I do that? What do I do? What do I do next? It should be automatic. We surrender to the will of our God. And we have confidence in God and His leadership. And when we surrender to the will of God, that leads us to priority number two in David's life. Number two, we go to God for direction and strength. And we all need it at times. Back to 1 Samuel 30 and verse 7. In verse 7, we read, So David followed up, it says in verse 6, And David strengthened himself in the Lord his God. And this is partly how he did it. Verse 7, First Samuel 30, and David said to Abiathar the priest, Ahimelech's son, please bring the ephod here to me. In other words, I, I want to hear from God. I want God's direction. I want God's insight. And Abiathar brought the ephod to David. So David inquired of the Lord. Notice that. He inquired of the Lord. And immediately in a time of great crisis and stress, David inquired of the Lord, of the eternal God. He turned to God for direction. Yeah, there was a time of despair, and he wept, and he was discouraged. But he quickly got hold of himself. Sometimes we have that time to do that as well. We get hold of ourselves, and we realize, wait a minute here, let me focus. And he went on to God for direction. And this became David's really strong point in his life whenever that happened. He went to God for direction. It helped him develop really the heart of a king, the strength of a king. Some might say, well, you know, that was all fine for David. He was able to go to the priest and get direction from God. But, you know, we don't have such a high priest today, and we can't ask for answers Maybe God doesn't send us emails, or there isn't handwriting on the wall. We'd like an email now and then. But yet, is that so? Seeing then that we have a great high priest who has passed through the heavens, Jesus, the Son of God, let us hold fast our confession, what we stand for. For we do not have a high priest who cannot sympathize with our weakness, but was in all points tempted as we are, yet without sin, let us therefore come boldly to the throne of grace, that we may obtain mercy and find grace in it to help in time of need. You know, that was from Hebrews 4. That's the principles, Hebrews 4, verses 14 and 16. So it's a principle. You know, we do have a high priest. We do have someone we can, a being, we can go to, and we, as we face difficult times and difficult situations, decisions, we're not sure which way to turn, our confidence should be in going to God for direction, just like David. We can do that today. Of course, prayer 
It's part of the path of going to our God in many situations. I go to God in prayer, spending a little time, also sometimes raising at another level. We may may spend a little bit of time fasting. It accelerates our contact with God. It tells God we are serious about seeking his direction. And we really do want his guidance. He makes wise decisions. He's there for us. And he only wants to see us succeed, not harm us. We can always go to God for positive direction. Psalm 109. Let's turn to Psalm 109. And David was well acquainted with that approach. Psalm 109 and verse 21. Verse 21, we read, But you, O God the Lord, deal with me. For your namesake, for your purpose, because your mercy is good, deliver me, help, deliver me, intervene, for I am poor and needy, and my heart is wounded within me. That happens to us sometimes. I am gone like a shadow when it lengthens, and I am shaken off like a locust, I'm weak. My knees, now notice this, my knees are weak through fasting. So he recognized his source, his strength. And my flesh is feeble from lack of fatness. I also become a reproach to them. When they look at me, they shake their heads. They think, look at David. You know, he's weak, he's feeble, he's lost weight. And he goes on to say, help me, O Lord, verse 26. O save me according to your mercies that they may know, those around you might say, may know, others may know that it is your hand. You're dealing in my life, you're guiding me, training me, that you, Lord, have done it. In other words, you're in control, and I trust you, and you're guiding me, and I'm looking for guidance. You know, as we sanctify, if we do, a time of fasting, we go to God, we have decisions to make, we don't know which way to turn, We want counsel from the great God. Hopefully we don't care what his answer is. We just want to see his answer. We want to see, do I turn left? Do I turn right? What do I do? But his offer to guide us is genuine. Isaiah 58. I think of of this chapter. I think of it as, yes, it's a chapter of fasting, but I also think it's a chapter of decision-making. You got the difficult decisions, not just the biggest decisions, but sometimes smaller decisions. Isaiah 58 and verse 6, of course, earlier verses telling us how not to fast. You know, kind of do for me, you know, I want this, I want that. Elevate me, help me to get ahead. And God says in verse 6, is this not the fast that I have chosen? In other words, if if we want to fast God's way, we do it his way. To loose the bonds of wickedness, to kind of see, be able to see things we need to change. The spirit of the law within us, maybe a little more of our own vanity. To loose the bonds of wickedness, something we can't see. To undo the heavy burdens, so many of the burdens we bring on our own life. It's our own doing. Maybe we don't know why or how, but we've brought it on ourselves. To let the oppressed go free, and oftentimes we oppress ourselves. We allow habits to continue the way we are. We don't really see our way to change. And that you break every yoke, every restraining force that keeps us in reality from having a better life. As God shows us areas we need to change, we have a better life. It's automatic. It always is. Not just always physically, but mentally, emotionally, spiritually. God doesn't give us the spirit of fear, but of power and of love and of a sound mind, a very stable, sound mind. So God gives us that opportunity as we go to our God. We go to God sometimes for direction as well. Verse 9, And then you shall cry, if that's your attitude, and the Lord will answer. If you have the right intent, the right purpose, God says, he will answer. And you shall cry, and he will say, here I am. 
In other words, I'm in tune to you. Incredible. If you take away, it says, the yoke from your, your midst, you know, just criticizing and pointing and contesting and contending, the pointing of the finger, the speaking w- wickedness, whatever it is. So God guarantees he will respond. And in turn, if we need direction, we're not really sure which way to go. Maybe it's the situation. Maybe it's a life decision. God gives a promise that we can count on. Verse 11. And the Lord will guide you continually. I think that's an incredible promise. You know, not everybody thinks of this that is fasting for decision making. But clearly God says if we do it in the right way with the right spirit, with the right intent, he says, I will guide you continually. You know, God does. We approach him that way. If we take the time and we have to, we trust in God, he will guide us. You know, unfortunately, I haven't always done that <laughs> in life. I've, sometimes I've made quick decisions. Sometimes they work out. Sometimes they don't. But, you know, at times when we're not really sure, you know, going to God, it could be a job. It could be, you know, it could be college. It could be, do I marry this person? It could be anything. Could be, do I buy a house now? Is it time for me? Do I start a business? Whatever it is, doesn't matter. We bother to ask God. We can't know all the parameters of any decision. We can't know all the hidden details. That's impossible. God does. You know, He knows. He knows all the details, the potential details, the situation. What might turn wrong if we make a certain decision? And we take the time. To seek our God in decision-making. I can remember way back when, when the weight of the doctrinal changes in worldwide were becoming increasingly obvious. Back many years ago, Dr. Meredith and a number of us were fasting the first uh, Sunday or Monday, whatever, of each month for a good part of a year. And you know, in time, looking, Dr. Meredith was looking for direction, and in time, God answered. It wasn't just one time. It wasn't just, well, I did that once. It was over a period of time. Eventually, God answered. And, of course, we know without going through the history, it was in a fatal decision, an important decision with Mr. Dukach, and God answered. Closed one door and opened another. Decision was made. Circumstances were spelled out. You might say the future was clear at a moment in time. But, you know, it's not always in our life. It's not always months and years go by. Sometimes God intervenes and shows his will after just one time. Maybe one, one fast. We need, it. we need help. We've got a decision to make, make, face the rest of our life. And we know that that can be the case. I remember years ago, and I'll... Uh, I've told the story often, but then it's something as mundane as is it time for me to buy a house. Now you think, okay, why bother God with that? <laughs> but uh, when we were moved to the Pasadena area and we had sold our house previously, my wife after and I, after about a year, were thinking, well, should we buy a house now? We didn't really care one way or another, but we decided, well, let's find out. Let's ask God. Let's fast. Let's ask God to direct us. Let's ask God to guide us. To close the door or open the door, we, you know, really, we shouldn't care. It's just whatever God shows us, he's going to benefit us. It's going to be for our good if we trust God's decision. And so we set out on an amazing experience of a number of weeks with a real estate lady. Uh, we, we looked at so many houses. We looked at finally one house, thought it would fit our family. We had three young adults that were either in college or soon would be. We soon had three college students. Uh, in that Southern California area. Found a house, looked good, no offers for the past four months, made it a reasonable offer, and within two hours, there was a second better offer. And I thought, well, okay, we're not going to get into a bidding war here. Let's move on. And so we start looking, and we look, and we look, and we find another house that is even a little bit better. And a younger couple inherited it, remodeled it totally, moved out of it, bought another house, and wanted to sell this house. And we looked at it several times, 
thought this will do for our family, for the five of us at that time. We make an offer, a reasonable offer. A week goes by. Finally, their real estate broker gets back to us and says, I'm sorry. They've changed their mind. They're moving back into the house. I'll give you a third example. I won't tell you the whole story. We, find, we keep looking. We look. We find another house. Two-story house, been remodeled from, from, from top to bottom by a guy who was a little bit handicapped. Two years of his life remodeling. It, it was perfect. It was beautiful. Wife had a muscular problem. Didn't like climbing the stairs because of her problem. Decided they wanted to move to Michigan. They wanted to be with their adult children. They wanted to sell. We look at the house. We like what we see. We think about it. Our, our real estate agent calls their real estate agent and says they would like to look at the house one more time before they make an offer. And their agent says, I'm sorry. They've changed their mind. They're not moving to Michigan. And so this happens. I'll, I'll stop the story there. This happens five or six <laughs> Uh, five or six times, and I'm thinking, okay, <laughs> okay, God, since we ask, God is saying, you know, he's not against buying homes. It's just we ask, and for that moment in the Pasadena area, he was saying, don't bother, you know. <laughs> Whatever the reason, I don't care. I never did care. I never found out. I still don't care. <laughs> and so we come to that decision, and the real estate lady says to me, this is incredible. I said, I've never seen this in all my life. She says, do you people pray? <laughs> and, of course, I said, yes, we pray. And she says, I guess God must not want you to buy a house now. <laughs> what can you say? You know, I'd come to that conclusion. My wife and I came to that conclusion. But I thought, that's outstanding. I'm glad I heard that from the lips of an unconverted person who could care less. <laughs> and so it goes, if we take time, if we seek our God. In this particular case, back to our story, David didn't have time to fast. Now, we can't always fast. You know, We can't say, okay, I'm going to take a break for a couple of days. David didn't have time to fast at that moment. But as we see in Psalms, it was nothing unusual. He was no stranger to fasting. He quickly sought God. First Samuel 30. Let's continue a little bit with the story. First, back to First Samuel 30. In verse 8. We already read here. So David inquired of the Lord, saying, so he's asking God, help me decision-making, shall I pursue this troop? Shall I overtake them? Again, you know, today God doesn't communicate in this fashion. <laughs> He's wanting some direct input here from the priest. And again, he doesn't send us, though we'd like him to, a, you know, a quick email. But, you know, we, we see circumstances. He answers with circumstances. In other words, you know, one's in a, for example, maybe in a real financial bind, Maybe things are coming apart at the seams. Maybe a job's been lost. Maybe creditors are knocking on the door. A landlord is, you might say, offering to evict. One immediately should begin thinking of fasting and seeking God's guidance. What do I do? Where do I go from here? We also should look for solutions. I just expect God to rescue us out of everything without us putting effort into it. You know, full-time, if we're out of a job, we, we make a full-time effort of looking for a job. Like it all depends on you. Not like God's going to drop a job on our doorstep or whatever. So many people have asked for God's direction or intervention at times and have put virtually no effort into seeking an answer. Early in the church... I remember one guy way back when, many years ago, we were first in a church, about my age, had a wife and young children, and he was out of a job, and he said he was going to fast until God got him a job. What did he learn? God could go longer than he could. 
Asking God for direction and intervention must include some effort on our part for solutions. You know, we seek solutions. We seek answers. And part of the process of seeking a solution should always include asking God to show us where we need to change. Or we're a little bit off track. You know, God knows. Maybe maybe we're blind to it. Sometimes God allows us to face a need, maybe even a crisis occasionally, to get us to look inward. You know, that happens. So we ask God for direction. We want God's insight, whatever it is, maybe a crisis, a major life decision, something. We recognize there's always areas we need to change. And we ask God to show us, help us to see a little bit more and we need to overcome our self, self-centeredness, whatever it is. And that brings us to a third priority. And that is, as God gives us direction, we trust God and we act on it. We act on it. Samuel 30 again, in verse 8. So as we recall, David inquired of the Lord, saying, Shall I pursue the troop? Shall I overtake them? So he wanted to know, Yes or no, what shall I do? And he answered him, and God answered him, Pursue, for you shall surely overtake them, and without fail recover all. I'm sure he was encouraged at the moment, but notice what happened immediately. Verse 9, So David went. He didn't sit on his hands thinking, He and his 600 men who were with him and came to the brook Besor, where those stayed who were left behind. And it says, And David pursued he and 400 men, for 200 stayed behind. So they were worn out. They couldn't move. 200 who stayed behind because they were so weary that they could not cross the brook Besor. So they were so dead tired, these 200 men, not all of them, but 200. And David didn't waste any time. He didn't sit around thinking, well, maybe we better wait and give our men a little more rest. <laughs> he said, go. And he went. David and his men, obviously, again, dead tired. Some might have said, well, you know, we're tired. We're distraught. We've had a difficult time. Let's get some rest. Let's think about it a while. Let's get some rest, and then we'll go tomorrow. We'll think about it in the morning. There might have been also some doubt, of course, about overtaking the Amalekites at that time. You know, these, these guys were, these warriors and the Amalekites, I imagine they were arrested. They were in good condition, superior in number, well-trained. Not David. He didn't think he needed to rest. He trusted God's direction. And he charged ahead. Quite often I've run across, probably we all do, new people who would appear to be called of God. they got a lot of understanding. they got a lot of knowledge. But they're fearful to trust God and to act on what they must do. And sometimes we have to stop and think, okay, should I act? Am I going to follow God? I remember some years ago visiting a gentleman, a potential member, had a lot of knowledge, a lot of background information, a lot of understanding, visited him in his home, and he indicated to me that he had just had surgery, he was recovering, and uh, he was ready to go back to work, and he recognizes, he recognized at the time that he probably, he said his employer would probably require him to work occasional Friday night, maybe occasional Saturday. He said, but he really needed his insurance. And he said, he assumed God would understand. And I said to him, you know, I I can't really, I'm not going to really tell you what to do, but you're going to have to decide whom you have more confidence in, your employer or your God. And in his case, he chose his employer. That's the way it is oftentimes. We We have to choose. Are we going to follow So, just like David, we have to choose to do what God shows us, to act on it, whatever it is. And just like David, we also have to trust God that he will see us through. He's going to bring us through this after all. David set out in pursuit of the enemy. 
there on the spot, trusting God to direct him, to be with him, to give him the victory. And God honored his faith. God honored that kind of trust. You might not, in some situations, see how your problem is going to be solved. Or I might not see how a certain problem is going to be solved. But you know, God knows. That's all that matters. He knows. He knows the way out. He knows how he can intervene. If you look at circumstances, if you're only focused on the immediate circumstances around you, you will quickly get discouraged. But if you trust God, like David, you will encourage yourself in the eternal. As Scripture says, For I am persuaded that neither death nor life nor angels, nor principalities, nor powers, nor things present, nor things to come, and they will come in our life in the years ahead of us, nor height, nor depth, nor any other created thing shall be able to separate us from the love of God. That is, from God's purpose in our life, from His action and guidance in our life, which is in Christ Jesus our Lord, Romans 8.38. In David's crisis, God intervened and led David to an Egyptian servant of one of the Amalekites, as it turned out, who in turn led David and his men to their exact location and where all the troops were and all the family was and all the children and wives were. 1 Samuel 30 and verse 17. So David got in action, and David attacked them from twilight until the evening, Of the next day, not a man of them escaped, except for 400 young men who rode on camels that fled. 400 young men got on their fast camels and took out. So they were gone. So David recovered all that the Amalekites had carried away, and David rescued his two wives. So they had a reunion at that time. And nothing of theirs was lacking either small or great, sons or daughters, spoil or anything, which they had taken from them. David recovered all. Incredible. It was a miraculous intervention at that time. God used this crisis in David's life to help cement really the vital knowledge in David's character that God can be trusted Guidance, deliverance, intervention. And we can follow God's lead in our life, of course, forever. And that brings me to the final priority. Finally, number four, when we are encouraged of the eternal, we make it our responsibility to be an encourager of others. Notice David's example. 1 Samuel 30, verse 21. Now David came to the 200 men, that is those who stayed back, who had been so weary that they could not follow David, and whom they also made to stay at the brook Besor. So they went out to meet David and to meet the people who were with him. And when David came near the people, he greeted them. Then all the wicked, in other words, all the self-centered and worthless men of the group, of those who went with David answered and said, because they did not go with us, you know, the the guys that were unable, we will not give them any of the spoil that we have recovered except for every man's wife and children, that they may lead them away and depart. And verse 23, but David said, my brethren, you shall not do so with what the Lord has given us who has preserved us and delivered into our hand the troop that came against us. For who will heed you in this matter? But as his part is who goes down to a battle, so shall his part be who stays with the supplies, and they shall share alike. And so it was from that day forward, he made it a statute and an ordinance for Israel to this day. Outgoing concern, encouragement. Now when David came to Ziklag, he sent some of the spoil to the elders of Judah and to his friends, 
So he spread it around a little bit further yet, saying, Here is the present for you from the spoil of the enemies of the Lord. So David made it his business to be an encourager of the brethren at that time. As God encouraged him, he made it his business to encourage others. You know, brethren, when God opens doors for us and he shows us the path, when we see God's hand in our life from time to time, when God brings us out of a crisis or a significant decision in our life uh, as occurs, it becomes our responsibility to encourage others among us, to kind of lead by example. We have to set a godly example. You know, we're told in Hebrews to encourage one another in order to stir up love and good works. That's Hebrews 10.24. It has to do with coming together in the Sabbath and the holy days. It's not just to hear a sermon, but also to come together to encourage each other. I'm here for you. You're part of my family. You know, I, I'm concerned. I care. How's things going? Well, David stirred up the brethren with encouragement, and we must do the same. God expects the same of us. Let's turn to 2 Corinthians, one final scripture, 2 Corinthians chapter 1. And we'll see an example here of what God expects of us when we're encouraged, when God lifts us up. 2 Corinthians chapter 1 and verse 3. And Paul says to the Corinthians, Blessed be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, the Father of mercies, the God of all comfort. And that's one of his character traits. He is the God of all comfort, who comforts us in all our tribulations and all our difficulties and struggles and decisions. Why? Partly that we may be able to, to comfort those who are in any trouble with the comfort with which we ourselves are comforted by God. So in other words, we're here to learn. God comforts us, raises us up so we can do the same, so we can learn the same character trait of God the Father, the God of all comfort. He expects no less of us. So our God, then, as the God of all comfort in our life, will expect us to comfort humanity in a few years, beginning in the millennium, to comfort humanity, to, to remind them we're here there for them, we're here to lift them up, to show them the way for a better life, for a better future, more stability, better marriages, the way of peace, the way of mental stability. And of course, we'll indicate it has the path is entrusting the true God, the creator of the universe. And we'll help them to see the more they trust their God in every crisis, in every downtime, in every situation that leads to the question, where do I go from here? What do I do? Or how do I get out of this situation? Which way do I turn? It's all training to be king for all of us. We're all potentially firstborn kings, priests of God. And, of course, this was very powerfully illustrated in David's life in this example in others. And is equally true in our life, if we want it to be. It's the same process I mentioned earlier. It's really, it's really boot camp to be king in our training. As we learn to trust God, he can be counted on. In conclusion, when things aren't going well, and it happens, and it will happen, when a major question arises in our life, could be a crisis, could be just simply a decision. What do I do? We can succeed with David's example. He encouraged himself with the eternal. So can we. We can encourage ourselves in the eternal. And we can do this very clearly by surrendering to the will of the great God, by going to God for direction and strength, by trusting God and acting on his guidance getting in gear, being active, and by making it our responsibility to become encouraging to others, encouragers of others. And that is the life process 
in training to be king.